welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got my co-host, Darcy, with me on this Friday evening recording for you all. How are you doing, Darcy? I'm doing pretty okay. I'm feeling a lot better than I did last week, um, and I had a pretty easy week at school, so I don't have any complaints this time for once in a very long time. Yeah, we had an incident last week where <laughs> we, we almost passed out, right? Or something of that nature. Yeah, we did. We did. <laughs> and, but we pushed through it. Darcy had a flu shot or something like that and just did not react well to it at all, right? Well, I got the flu shot a while back, but I actually think what happened is like when you get the flu shot but still get the flu, you know, like you get like the light flu. So I didn't actually take my temperature, but I do think I was running a fever and it was just like constant for a week. Everything was hurting and I think I had a fever. I had the chills and all of that. So it was just, it culminated on Friday and that was, was not great. <laughs> we had to take a, a brief pause. <laughs> Yikes. And Darcy laid on the floor <laughs> yeah. in the bathroom for a few minutes and then came back and I was like, what happened? <laughs> Took a break. Everything, everything okay in there? <laughs> well, I'm glad. Took a little bit of I'm a glad break. you're feeling better. Uh, having a, having too. a beer over on that end or something, right? Oh hell yeah, I am. What yeah, kind I'm of beer, beer is it for the first time? This is just a Yingling. First time I've drank while we recorded in a long time too, because I actually have the teeniest of breaks from school. My advisor is actually out of town this week, so ah okay. Don't have too too much pressing, so I get to drink and I'm feeling pretty good. Nice. It's pretty pretty okay Friday night with this guy right here. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm drinking a little champ. Little, right. The cheap stuff per use. Nothing wrong with that. Um, so I've got a case to start out with tonight that I thought was super interesting and I found it on Yahoo and the title of it is Man Serving Life Sentence Says It Ended Once He Died and Was Revived oh. in a Medical Emergency. Did you hear about this case? I did hear about this case. So this came out on USA Today by Anna Spore. Um, it actually came out, I think, last week, and evidently a man in Des Moines, Iowa, was convicted of murder and rushed from the Iowa State Penitentiary to a hospital in 2015 where his heart was restarted five times. Um, he claims that his life sentence was fulfilled by his short-lived death and that he has overstayed his prison time by four years. So this man, <laughs> Benjamin Schreiber, was found guilty of first-degree murder in 1997 and sentenced to life behind bars without the possibility of parole. He was hospitalized in March after a large kidney stone, this is back in 2015, caused him to develop septic poisoning. By the time he Ooh. arrived at the hospital, he was unconscious. He had signed a do not resuscitate agreement years earlier, and the medical staff called his brother in Texas who told them if he's in pain, you may have to give him something to ease that pain, but otherwise you're let him go, let him pass. Mm -hmm. But the doctors saved his life, and they administered resuscitation fluids through an IV, and then he went, underwent surgery to fix the damage done by the kidney stones. And so this guy now thinks that he's like, he's good, he should be free. So he filed for post-conviction relief April 2018, claiming that because he momentarily died at the hospital, that he fulfilled his life sentence and should be freed right away. But yeah, everybody else is like, no freaking way, you were sentenced to life without parole. He's like, no, it's not life plus one day. And they have denied his request thus far, finding his claim unpersuasive and without merit. And the Iowa Court of Appeals affirmed this decision on last week, agreeing that his sentence isn't up until the medical examiner declares that he is officially and completely deceased. Right. That's the thing. Like, just because your heart stops doesn't mean you're declared medically or legally dead. 
I mean, it's weird. I think they probably shouldn't have resuscitated him. That's kind of, I mean, if he had a DNR and his presumable next of kin or whoever was in charge of his legal affairs said, let him, you know, don't resuscitate him, then I think they probably should have not resuscitated him. Right. But he wasn't actually declared legally or medically dead. Right. Your heart stopping doesn't mean you're medically dead. Yeah. The judge basically agreed with that and said, hey, you're still alive, dude, in which case you have to remain in prison. Unless you're actually dead, in which case this appeal right. is moot. And then the district court didn't address his additional claims about his due process rights being violated when the doctors failed to follow his do not resuscitate request. I guess they figured he didn't even deserve to have that argument addressed. And That's like, that is kind of weird that they didn't follow that. Like, that seems peculiar to me. But Just that's a like a different argument. You know what I mean? Um, It's an interesting case, though, nonetheless. Um, I get the violation arguments based upon his documents saying don't resuscitate, but I don't get the, hey, I died in prison, so my sentence is up and I should be free. Yeah, like, that's a really bad argument. Did he file that himself or did his lawyers? I, I would have a hard time believing his lawyers actually filed that and were like, for real. He probably, like, thought it up in his mind, like, hey, I died. Shouldn't I be free? And then his lawyer probably thought of some clever way to announce that in his court briefs and and figured out a way to try to get out of it. It's interesting. It's cute. Yeah. It's cute. It's a cute little tactic, but it's not, like, there's no, there's no legal or medical, like, basis for for him having actually died. He did not die. His heart stopped. Those are two different Dude, things. you're alive. <laughs> as far as I can see, you're the right. same person and you're still alive. So just because you like right. your heart stopped for a few seconds does not mean you were dead. Get on with your right. life. You're not getting out of jail. Bye. Did he undergo some kind of psychic experience you, you know, where he like saw the light and like <laughs> yeah like I don't he think like so. a whole a wholly new person like that's a better argument than right. oh I already died you know I don't like, think it's so just, either way it's just yeah not so much like claiming you're the same exact person who you're like yeah I definitely killed this woman and I was convicted of it but here's I'm the a new person now my heart stopped so <laughs> technically I was reincarnated instantly I that life sentence <laughs> Right, if he were actually arguing if he were reincarnated, that would be one thing. Because then you could argue that, like, he had a change of heart or he's a better person. He saw the light. I don't think reincarnation works that way. Like, reincarnation is like somebody dies and their and their spirit goes into the body of a baby or a new creature. I don't think reincarnation works in the opposite way where you die and somebody gets your body and it's old and crispy. You know what I mean? I don't think it works that way. Uh, well, I don't think reincarnation is a thing. In the right. First place, well, but it might be. If how it, how if do we it know? Were, we don't. But I'm saying that's I don't think it is. But if we, I mean, in that same vein, how do we know it's not what he's claiming? We know that he is still alive. We know that he is still alive. So he's got to stay in prison. <laughs> that's what we both know. Um, in any case, Today's case that I want to talk about is something that has popped up in the news a little bit lately. Uh, there have been tons of other cases where law official, law enforcement officials and investigators are now using genetic genealogy, um, including the most prominent one, which is probably the Golden State Killer case. And this one, right. they actually used 
genetic geneal- genealogy as well, but there are some factors in it that are very interesting in light of some of the things that we've discussed in recent episodes. And this is actually, I want today I want to talk about the case of Angie Dodge. And I know a lot of podcasts have done this topic before, and there's some really, really good stuff out there on it. I got a lot of information online from a couple of different articles, which I will post in the show notes, as well as the 48 hours episode that they did on this. But this is a very, very interesting case, and it happened back in June 12th, 1996. Mm. Angie Dodge was born December 21st, 1977 in Vancouver, Washington. Again, this is a Washington State connection. Oh. She was born to Jack and Carol Dodge. She was the youngest of four children. And she was a very gifted child, according to all accounts. She was extremely intelligent, very outgoing, loved life. She started school, though, in San Diego. Another local connection, right? Before her family moved to Idaho Falls, Idaho, for her junior high and high school years. She basically attended, I believe, Idaho State University for a short period of time and then ended up dropping out of that. But she was very involved in tutoring kids in math and English. She graduated from Idaho Falls High School in 1995 with honors. So she was a very intelligent girl, really believed Mm -hmm. in giving back to the community. She was a very outdoorsy type of person as well who loved camping and being around water. She had big plans for her life. She wanted to do things and go places and experience the fullness of life. She was just a very, by all accounts, a very happy, outgoing, go-lucky type of person. But in the summer of 1996, not long after graduating from high school, she lived in a mostly Mormon community, and that's Idaho Falls, Idaho. I don't know if you've ever been there, but there's a huge Mormon population in that area, or at least there was in 1996. It was kind of a... Yeah, I've never been to Idaho at all. It's beautiful in the north... Well, I I would think I would consider Idaho still the northwest or that sort of a thing. Yeah, I would. It's really beautiful there in the summers and warm and lovely. And I'm sure that she just kind of... The world was full of promise for her. She was working at a beauty supply store. And everyone sort of knew everyone else in this area. Doors were hardly ever locked. People knew each other by name. It was a very community, mm-hmm. community-oriented place to live. And I think there was sort of a sense of security, especially for someone young and ambitious and just loving life like Angie was. But mm-hmm. three weeks before this event happened, Angie had moved into her own apartment and she was starting to become more independent and trying to figure out what she wanted to do with her life. But when she didn't show up for work at a local local beauty supply store on June 12th, people started to worry. And a couple of her co-workers decided they were going to go check on her. And police were called around 11 in the morning immediately after they realized she hadn't showed up to work. So they were on it right away. And... Um, Angie's friends went to her house and the door was unlocked and they kind of pushed it open and they found her on the floor. And at that point she, they realized she was deceased. It was a very, very bloody crime scene. There were no signs of forced entry, but there were signs of a struggle as though she had fought for her life. Um, it's a sad case. She'd been stabbed and cut very brutally about 14 times She was Mm. left half naked, I believe, and whoever did this to her had ejaculated on her before leaving 
her apartment. So it was grim. It was awful. It was brutal. This young woman did not deserve to die in a way like this. But if you're going to get a pristine DNA profile, this was it right here. And the police were like, hey, this is this is good news. Despite the fact that we don't really have any fingerprints or hair fiber samples or anything like that, we do have this really clean cut case of DNA on her body that we can possibly do something with. And at that point in time, DNA was a relatively new type Mm -hmm. of crime scene tool, the collection of it and the analysis of it. But they did a very good job of collecting the DNA from her body. And then they started looking at all the local guys in the community and people that Angie knew. And they interviewed everybody and asked to take DNA samples from people. One of the people that they interviewed was Christopher Tapp. He knew Angie Dodge to a certain degree, not super closely, it's my understanding, but his DNA did not match the DNA that was on Angie's body. So I believe a lot of people initially thought that he should be ruled out as a suspect. Mm-hmm. However, he was not. And after 28 hours of interrogation over 23 days, Christopher Tapp confessed to participating in Angie's murder. Participated? Yes. He did not admit that okay. he had done it. He did not say he was a sole one. He said there were multiple people involved in this. No one hmm. in Angie's family knew or met this guy. So they're all just kind of baffled when Tap tells police that he and two friends had stopped by Angie's apartment and an argument had ensued and that one of the friends had stabbed Angie while Christopher held her down. Can I ask a question? Yes. Was there DNA from more than one person no. there? One DNA profile and one only, and it was not Christopher Tapps. Okay. That being said, he still confessed, but it right. was after 28 hours of interrogation over 23 days. So clearly something mm-hmm. else is going on here. And that is kind of proven when Tapp pleads not guilty to the charges of rape and murder when he stands before the judge. And his Mm -hmm. attorneys are arguing, hey, the DNA does not match the DNA that was found on Angie. You cannot convict this man. However, May 28th, 1998, the jury convicts Tap after 13 hours of deliberation. And everyone is just kind of shocked. Wow. Two years after the murder had happened, Christopher Tap goes to prison for murder and rape. He gets 30 years to life with the possibility of parole. But... Because the DNA is still unmatched out there, the case still remains open. Christopher Tapp would not tell the police who else was there with them. He gave some vague information, including a name, Mike. But no one could understand why in the heck this guy would take this sentence of 30 years and not give any details about these other people or at least give up who the other people were. People are just like completely baffled. All he's saying is, hey, it's it's Mike. And he had given a couple of other names as well, but none of those names went anywhere. And the ones that he did give did not match the DNA evidence either. So I have a question. Sorry. Uh, I'm just confused. So they, I mean, they, we may not know what they had, but they clearly would have had something else 
if they continued to go after him even after his DNA did not match, right? Because you're saying that even when he would name other people, those people were then cleared because their DNA did not match. So they're like the police had something else on. Let him, me finish. Right? Is that like let what me I'm finish because uh, it'll give you a little bit more right. understanding as we go through some of this other evidence. Okay, so right. um, the case goes cold. Christopher taps in jail, and I think yeah. at that point the police were like, "Hey, we got this guy. We're not really going to put a lot of time and effort into it." Despite right. the fact that there is DNA evidence out there saying that somebody is at fault for this. Right. So a bunch of years go by. Before they know it, it's 2009. The DNA that was tested back in 1996 is put into CODIS, the National Criminal, Criminal Database. Mm-hmm. But there's still no match in the database. And we all know that that is not necessarily unusual because in order for someone to go into CODIS, they have to have some sort of conviction or they have to be caught for a crime and have their DNA put into this mm-hmm. database. If they did not have a crime after that, if they kept their nose clean, then there's no reason their DNA would be in CODIS, Right. Mm-hmm. So then yeah. Angie's family's like, we don't know what's going on here. Why have we not been able to find this person? It's been so many years. Like, what is going on? We need to find Angie's killer. And they contact a DNA expert. And do they think that um, this tap guy is is involved or are they just looking for the actual? I think they, they weren't sure. The I think that they thought he might have been involved, but the fact that his DNA did not match the DNA on Angie's body was something that was a huge red flag for them. Sure. And they were like, okay. you know, something's got to give here. We need to figure out who did this and we need to figure out soon because this is getting ridiculous. It's been years. This guy's in jail. Gotcha. And we still haven't found her killer. So this yeah. DNA okay. expert, um, recognizes that there have been a lot of advances in DNA tools since Angie's murder. Mm -hmm. And both him and Angie's mother, Carol, start to think about some of the things that are going on with the use of familial DNA. And this is looking for anyone that may be related to Angie's killer by sort of tracing it back through the family tree, much in the same way that the Golden State Killer was found. Mm -hmm. Presumably. Um, Because he has not been tried in a court of law just yet. So allegedly he is the killer that was Golden State killer. Anyway, um, this means that they're going into the DNA profiles in databases looking against them for partial matches in order to narrow down family members and find a killer. But... Idaho doesn't allow familial searches in its criminal databases. Mm -hmm. So they believe that they have got to go into a public database like Ancestry.com or one of those type databases and match it against the DNA profile that they have. So in the summer of 2014, they searched a database related to Ancestry.com and they got a hit. One of the people that had given a DNA sample in that database had 34 of 35 markers matching. So according to experts, this is a pretty significant number of matches within markers in a person's genetic makeup. Yeah, This is close enough to find a relative and get a warrant. So they go to Ancestry.com, they hand them over the warrant, they say you need to reveal this person's identity so that we can find them. And it was Michael... Usury or Ushery Sr. They looked okay. into the family background in particular, and Ushery's son, Mike Jr., came pinged up on their radar. And detectives wondered if he was the Mike 
possibly that they had been looking for that Christopher Tapp had called out. Oh, right. Okay. Additionally, they started looking at his Facebook profile and sort of running into his background. And he was a documentary filmmaker and he did horror films and he talked about murder and he made all kinds of like crazy murder type films that made him stand out as a pretty solid suspect. So police come to his door in 2014, in December of 2014. This is 18 years after the murder. He was living in New Orleans at the time, and two detectives knock on his door, and they start interrogating him. And he has no idea what any of this Mm -hmm. is about. And they asked him if he'd he'd ever been to Idaho. Now, the police already looked at his Facebook profile and saw that he had friends in Idaho. So they were like, we know he's been there at some point or another. He says, not knowing what any of this is about, he says, yeah, I've been to Idaho. And it turns out that he was up there with his friends for a single night around the time that this happened. He was 19 years old. um, And the friends all drove through Rexburg, Idaho, passing through Idaho Falls at the time of the murder. So at that point, the police are like, okay, we needed, we need a warrant. They got the warrant and they swabbed his cheek for DNA. They took him into the the police station. They swabbed his cheek for DNA and then they drove him home and they didn't offer him any explanations according to his accounts as to why they took the DNA and what was going on. And so in the meantime, he's like, I have no idea what's going on. He starts calling his friends. They asked me for this DNA sample. I don't know what's going on. The only thing that they told him was that it was related to a high-profile murder case in Idaho Falls, Idaho. So Mike and his friends start doing research, and they figure out that it must be the Angie Dodge case after they do an internet search. Mm-hmm. And evidently, Mike had done a film about a convict stabbing a woman to death and watching her insides spill out. And oh, the police my. immediately suspect that he was copying that on the night of the murder of Angie. Just super gruesome. And, of course, Ashri, like, realizes all this and is like, oh, my God, they think I did this. They think he's super paranoid. He's freaking out. He knows they're watching him. He thinks they're probably tapping his phone and looking at his computer searches and all that kind of stuff. And he starts doing research on this. And a local news reporter gives him the warrant that was used to get his DNA. She gets a copy of it. And he sees it was related to the Ancestry.com database search. Okay. So it's clear to him at that point that the police had zoned in on him instead of any of the other relatives. There was really nothing in the Ancestry.com report that zeroed in on him. It just said somebody who was a relative of his dad possibly did this. But he feels... And then because he has, like, the murder film yes. and all of that background... They zeroed okay. on him, him immediately, and he's worried, hey, the real killer's out there, and you're so zeroed in on me... That you're not looking for the real person who did this. Like, you've pretty much decided that I did it. clearly my cousin. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's clear that they got all this from the Chris Tapp confession as well. And mm-hmm. he's super pissed. And he's like, somebody in my family killed this person. Like, I, I want to know who it is. Does he know Chris Tapp? No, he has no idea who Chris Tapp is. Huh. January 13th, 2015... One month after they took his DNA profile in the police station, they send him an email and it tells him, hey, your DNA doesn't match, but you already know that you're cleared. You're good. Go on through life. Uh, an email. Yeah. But at that point, he's That's like fucking traumatized. He's like, this is ridiculous. How are they allowed to do something like this? I am appalled that they can just go into this yeah. database in Ancestry.com. And how is Ancestry letting them do this? 
Was it actually Ancestry? It was. It was a company owned by Ancestry.com. And he, like, starts an all-out media war on them and is like, how dare you? You're, you shouldn't be able to do this. But Ancestry.com is, like, doing, like, spin control. And mm-hmm. as well as some other DNA companies that are like, they insist that they never share any information unless there's a warrant or a court order. So they're saying, you know, you can feel mm-hmm. safe using our products. We're not going to give up your information unless there's a warrant or a court order. Ancestry.com also says they feel like this case is super unique. And the only time that they've gotten, it is the only time that they've gotten a formal legal request for DNA for them, which I highly doubt. I suspect there have been many, many, many times they have been, but they're obviously trying to control their image at that point. They claim that they have since made their public database private and it can't be in uh, accessed by police or the public anymore. Okay. So Michael Ushry decides he's going to make a document documentary about all this. And so he starts researching Mm -hmm. and, like, writing up stuff to get involved with. And he asks Angie's family if they want to participate in this. And they decide, hell yeah, like, we need to use this as a jumping board or a sounding board to get Angie's killer. So in exchange for her agreement to help them, Angie's mother, Carol, says she wants a genealogy sheet written of Mike's family because she is certain that that killer is in his family. Oh, wow. During this period of time, Mike and Carol sort of become friends and they start talking about Angie's killer and figuring out how they're going to find this guy. And they start looking over all the evidence again and really get this case blown wide open, despite the fact that it was a cold case. Mm -hmm. And the Idaho Innocence Project gets behind Chris Tapp as he claims his confession was forced. And this is all kind of going on simultaneously. And people are working to get Chris Tapp set free. Um, they're starting to look at physical evidence again. Chris is about 40 now, and he has been in jail for 20 years by that point. And the people that are looking to get Chris released are looking through the evidence from his confessions, and they can see that his interrogations and polygraph testing is all recorded on tape. Now, the reason that Chris had even come into the spotlight on this at all was because his friend Ben, who also knew Angie, was arrested for assaulting a woman with a knife in Nevada. So when that happened, this seemed very similar to them to the attack that had happened to Angie. So while Ben was in custody, the police grabbed Chris and began questioning him, telling him that, hey, we've got Ben. We know you did this. Um, et cetera, et cetera. They're kind of pushing him to try to give them information about this case. And the problem with this is most people don't know that the police can lie when they're interrogating people. And evidently this 20 year old kid was pretty naive and he didn't know that either. Experts say that most innocent people don't even know or understand that the police can lie to them during the interrogation uh, process. And that's what happened. The police basically told Chris that they had irrefutable evidence that Ben had killed Angie and that Tap was there at the time of the murder. In the meantime, you can watch the tape and you can see that it starts out. Tap is denying over and over that he is involved with anything during this interrogation. And even with his attorney, they keep questioning him and questioning him and things keep changing for him. Then they start offering Tap polygraph tests and they tell him that his test indicated deception. Now, all in all, they give him seven polygraph tests. 
And at the same time, the police are promising him full immunity with no jail time if he confesses as long as he took no part in the actual murder. So by then, this poor guy has just been, like, interrogated and interrogated, and he thinks that if he tells them what they want to hear, that he'll be fine because he was being truthful. Mm -hmm. So hours later, unbeknownst to him or anyone else that's related to him, the police discover that Ben's DNA doesn't match the DNA on Angie. So his friend Ben that got that assault charge in Nevada has no connection to this case either. But the police don't care. Tap then backpedals and changes his story again. And this just turns into a freaking hopeless tangle. He starts giving up all these names. None of the names match the DNA and the police still wouldn't let him go until he confessed to participating after 23 days of interrogation. He basically says that he stabbed her because Ben made him do it. And then it becomes a whole thing of, well, you changed your story so many times. Why would you change your story if you weren't trying to hide something? And then basically by him saying that he participated in it, he voids his immunity agreement. Mm -hmm. And um, then... About three years ago, the people that are working on the Innocence Project and trying to get him, just trying to get him freed, find all these tapes of the polygraphs, and everyone is completely convinced of Chris's innocence at that point. It becomes their mission to clear Chris Tap. People are looking at these videos and seeing Chris stug- struggling with even the smallest of details. Like it's clear that they're like feeding him this, and he's just kind of regurgitating right. it. He's not telling them the truth. So just judges for justice um, takes Chris's case on and they're now also interested because he's changed his story six times in the tapes. He has nine interrogations Mm -hmm. and seven polygraphs. All of them were recorded, but no one had looked at these tapes because they determined that they weren't admissible in court and the sound quality was poor. So this poor guy is sitting in prison, even though these tapes are clearly showing that this is some crazy shit going on. And at this point, he has, like, served his 30 years. He's been in jail for 20 years at that point. Yeah. Um, now, normally, a polygraph test would be used to sort of assess the credibility of the witness. It wouldn't be used in court. Mm-hmm. In this case, it was kind of used to trick Chris Tapp to implicate himself. And it, that's really obvious when people start looking at these tapes. So experts are saying that police broke multiple rules in the polygraph room, and they thought no one would notice. So they were, like, doing right. everything shady mm-hmm. in the book. Now, nobody did notice. No, and that's against everything that should have happened. The Supreme Court has already Mm -hmm. ruled that police cannot threaten specifically anything with people in there because this can lead to a false confession. But when you listen and look Mm -hmm. at these tapes, you can see that they threatened him repeatedly with the death penalty, with being an accessory to murder. And you're going to go to jail for life. They were essentially threatening him, which is not allowed. Right. And it's pretty clear that Chris was brainwashed. And at that point, they got him because he says he stabbed Angie because Ben threatened him. Mm-hmm. And Tap never told anyone about what happened in the polygraph, and he never knew what happened was wrong. So how is anyone going to figure any of this out? And the Idaho police the whole time are like, hey, we didn't do anything wrong. And all of the courts over the course of the 20 years upheld Tap's conviction and said there was no coercion that went on. Despite these polygraph videos. nobody was watching these tapes. Exactly. So his attorneys get these polygraph videos and put them in order and decide they're going to submit these to try to get him a new trial. 
And March 2017, Chris Tapp gets a hearing to convince the judge that he wasn't at the murder scene and everything is scheduled to go. And um, the district attorney then offers a deal. Mm. Murder conviction stands, but the rape conviction would be removed and so would the probation and that he would be a free man after serving 20 years. They determine they don't want to fight wow. this out. They're just going to let it go. Tap takes the deal and he walks out a free man. This was about two years ago. Okay, so. So he's still convicted of murder. He's still convicted of murder, but everybody knows he didn't do it because there was no DNA. His DNA didn't match right. his DNA on the scene. So they, everyone knows there's somebody still out there who did this. Right. Tap is a full, has a full-time job now. He's married, and he's a productive member of society, but there's still kind of this hanging over his head, as it would be for anyone, right? Sure. And Angie's family now believes they know that he didn't do it. They're behind him, and they're like, we've got to find this person so that Angie can finally be at peace. Then they get an unlikely ally. There is a new police chief in Idaho who sets his sights on Angie's case and is determined to find the real killer. This is two years later, May 16th, 2019. The chief announces they have found and arrested somebody who matches the DNA on Angie's body. The reason okay. for this is because Parabon Nanolabs got involved. They stepped into this case and assisted with genealogy and public databases to help them. Because even since they did the initial genealogy with Ancestry.com, there had still been more advances that could give them a little bit more um, close matches DNA wise mm -hmm. and Parabon interestingly enough this was the 56th case that they helped solve that year with genetic genealogy actually wow. the 56th case this year so as of two, 2019 in May they had already helped solve 56 cases wow and they had either, they'd either found unknown suspects or victims with genealogy which is interesting and they were able mm -hmm. to create a more extensive profile of Angie's killer based on the DNA that they found at the crime scene. This was uploaded to a larger public DNA database called GEDmatch, which we all know what that is from a bunch of yep. other cases that have gone through. And it's a free website where you can put information in to find relatives in exchange for opting in to data that can be used by law enforcement. Um, but you have to opt into it. It's not just automatic that it goes in there. And that's a new policy. Correct. That wasn't the original policy. Yeah. Police continued to investigate this the whole time, and they did find that someone in Mike's family was, sus was suspected in this because the DNA matched. It was somewhere in his family right. tree. But they start looking through all the people that are related to Michael, and they start looking through this list and genetically testing all of them. They're trailing all these guys and they're kind of whittling this list down little by little, getting like cigarettes, Coke cans. Like they even had one guy that like spit chewing tobacco out and the police followed this dude and like oh. scooped his chewing tobacco up and tested it. Gross. No, thank you. So they whittle this list down to 10 people and then they whittle it down to six people and they're secretly following all these dudes around, like, because it was a guy, obviously. So they're secretly following all these dudes sure. around, collecting all their garbage and straws and cans and stuff. Fun job, right? Wouldn't that be, like, your dream yeah. job? Collect tobacco spit from some gross no. dude. Um, ooh, gross. So all these come back negative. And they're kind of getting worried at that point because the list is getting smaller and smaller. And they're starting to think that maybe there had been 
a child in the family tree that they were missing and didn't know about. Mm -hmm. And they were right. They stumbled upon an obituary that listed to investigators that there had been a missing member of the family. There had been a son that had been conceived after a divorce, and he had a different last name. This person was Brian Drips. And police get that aha moment because they realized that they had actually interviewed this guy. He lived, at the time of Angie's death, he lived across the street from her. And they had questioned him way back in the beginning of the investigation and determined that he wasn't involved. This was like the first day of the murder. The police questioned him. He was 31 years old at the time. They were canvassing the neighborhood. Drips denied any knowledge, and the police never asked for his DNA. Seven weeks. All of that time. Right? Just right in front of them the entire time. He was in like the first 25 pages of the investigation because they had interviewed him. Mm. But seven weeks after the murder, he leaves Idaho Falls. And he was still about 300 miles away, still within the state of Idaho, but about 300 miles away from Idaho Falls. And they locate him when they find him through this obituary, obituary and kind of trace back to him. And they follow him around until he gets rid of a cigarette butt. And they link him from that cigarette butt. What's his story? Why was he, uh, was he adopted? Did he not have... No, his, his parents were going through a divorce when the mother was pregnant. And then they divorced uh-huh. and he got the mother's name, not his father's name. Gotcha. So if he had had the father's okay. name, the genealogy would have passed down in that family and tree and linked him. But since they he were had the mother's name, the male family tree. Exactly. It didn't match up. Gotcha. Okay. So police pick him up and take him in for questioning, and he is acting super duper shady at that point. He initially denies everything, but after they question him for a couple of hours and tell him they have his DNA from the crime scene, he admits his involvement, and he is arrested May fifteenth, two thousand nineteen. He said that he acted all alone. So it turns out that Chris Tapp, there's no way this dude could have been involved. Two months after that, Tapp goes back to court and he is cleared of everything related to the crime. He is fully exonerated. What's an interesting part about this case as well is this is the world's first exoneration from genealogical DNA testing. Oh, interesting. So it's a landmark Did he also sue Idaho's dicks off? I don't think he did. It does not say wow. anything in here about him suing, but it seems as though he should have. That They would rename that fucking state after me right? if that happened. Um, and then Michael Ushry Jr. still has doubts about the use of genealogy testing, and he kind of speaks out about it now and is like, we just need to use a lot more caution. He doesn't, still doesn't yep. think it's fair that they could go into that ancestry database that his dad gave a sample for and come back to him mm-hmm. and accuse him without explaining at all what was going on or giving him the chance to defend himself. They just took his DNA and took off. And then as soon as they found out he wasn't guilty, they're like, Oh yeah, you're not guilty by, by email. Yeah. So he's like, that's just yeah. isn't right. And it's it, it created a lot of drama and doubts and, and craziness in my life that I don't think I deserved because I had nothing to do with this. Right. But other people disagree and claim that they would have never found this killer without genealogy testing, including Angie's mom and Angie's family, who pressed for this over and over and over again because they knew that they were going to find this guy through genealogy, and they did. Mm-hmm. Brian Drip so far has pleaded not guilty. He is currently in custody and awaiting his trial, 
In the meantime, Carol Dodge and Angie's brother have started a nonprofit for cold cases to help solve them. They scoop up these cold cases and help get genealogy involved and anything else that they can do to try to help get these cases solved. If you look at Brian Drips, though, it's very interesting. He is 53 years old now. He is a divorced father of three. He has no major criminal history, at least on Idaho. Hmm. He has misdemeanor drug possession charges in 2002 and some driving infractions. And his friends and family were just totally shocked by all this because clearly this guy had kept his nose clean after that and not committed any more major yeah. crimes. It, it's, it seems like it's a lot like... Some of these other genealogy solved cases, like the two girls in Tacoma, where the two separate men that they found them both through geneal- genealogical DNA testing, n- neither one of them had committed any further crimes in their lives. So they had this kind of one-time right. thing where they, at least that not that they got caught for, but they had this one sort of one-time right. thing where they killed these two little girls and then kept their nose clean for the rest of their lives, or at least never got caught. And- yeah, and... And we've talked about this on a couple episodes in the past when we do these cases. And I think you and I both have a healthy level of apprehension about this new technology. And this is really interesting because this is a really well-known case. And it's, I mean, if, if you watch investigation, investigation Discovery, I mean, you see that this is covered all the time. Like Keith Morrison has his own special about Angie Dodge. And it's interesting that... This is a case that uses both both examples of why gene, uh, genetic genealogy is a good thing and why it's it's a little bit of a dangerous thing, right? Yeah. Like, because I don't think that anybody would say that if you have an opportunity to use this kind of tool, that you shouldn't use all the tools at your disposal. I right. think that they found a, like a loophole with this Jed match, you know that that it's something that you voluntarily upload yourself, your information to, and whether or not you read the fine print, it's, it does clearly say in there that by uploading this law enforcement does have access. And before the golden state killer, you know, Joseph D'Angelo, before he was arrested, that was sufficient. Everybody was like, yeah, whatever, fine print, check the box, blah, blah, blah. And then it became a thing of, oh shit, no, you actually do need to read the fine print. This is actually a really big deal. And then they changed their policy to where you have to voluntarily opt into this policy. You're not automatically in this, in this, um, database just by uploading your data. Um, but it's really interesting because yes, that is how they found him, but it's also, a prime example of why you need the regulation and why you need the correct training to look at these things. You shouldn't just have, in my opinion, carte blanche access to this. You need somebody that actually knows what they're doing and knows how to properly mine that data so that they don't just go find somebody. Oh, well this guy we think did it said Mike and this guy's name Mike. So clearly he's our suspect. Like they didn't go far enough. Like they looked at his background. They looked at his Facebook page. They found the connections. I get it. Um, but at the same time, if you give someone a bunch of information and say, hey, we're investigating you for this murder, then you may tip them off and they may either run or they may like hide more evidence. But I think by te- not telling them, then there's a po- there's better possibility that you're going to get what you need to get in order to arrest that person if they truly are the killer. And I, I do agree with you, but what I'm saying is they looked for something that would confirm what they wanted to see. 
Right. They had a confirmational bias that they were looking for. And when they got to the point where they said, look, this guy is into murder stuff. He has a relative that matches. And his name is Mike, which is what our person who we've already convicted has said was involved. Boom, boom, boom. This is our guy. Yeah. And they stopped looking. Now, the the actual information for the actual killer was in that tree and that family tree they just didn't go far enough and i think that that's where i i'm going to the point of saying you need proper training and we need proper regulation right on something like this like it's so new that there's just like a flood of people trying to get involved in it and that makes me nervous because you have it's like the wild wild west properly trained these people aren't scientists and i think you need to have a scientific background to look at this information properly and these people are just law enforcement exactly it's not to say that these people aren't intelligent it's not to say that they don't know their jobs well what they don't know is dna testing they had good intentions they just didn't know how far they needed to go they didn't do like what like to use your example, they didn't do what a scientist would do, which is where you would look at something and rather than confirm what you want to see, you look and see how far something goes and then that is your answer, be it right, wrong, good or right. bad. That's what you know a scientific study would do. And I think that it's interesting that you point out that once Parabon International got involved, that's when they were able to actually appropriately mine that data. Right. And I think that that's kind of the thing that makes me apprehensive is I, I personally wouldn't upload my, my data to one of these um, websites, even though I have these 23andMe, I wouldn't give it to a, a database that would let law enforcement use it just carte blanche because I don't trust that the, the right people are, are using it. You right. know what I mean? And I think as this technology continues to progress and get used more and more, because as I said earlier, 56 cases so far Parabon has helped solve this year alone. And that yeah. was back in May. So I'm sure that it's galloped ahead and we're probably at close to 100 if not more by now but i think as we continue to see these cases get solved and the involvement of gna uh, genetic dna testing and genealogy increase in the solving of crimes i think we're going to continue to see regulation also go along with that hand in hand because yeah. people are going to start suing law enforcement for trauma and for emotional distress and all these other things. And it's going to start hitting them where it counts in the pocketbook. And they're going to have to be more intelligent about how they use and mine that information. And thus the reason regulation is going to start becoming more of a factor, I think, or at least I hope. I do too. And, and I think that I hope that they're, that law enforcement is going to start bringing in like subject matter experts in this area and not, um, not contracting out to third parties. I'm not, I don't have any problem with third parties and contracting out with law enforcement, but I think that they need their own in-house experts. Right. Um, because I think that that's how you kind of get to this, this question of can anybody just go in and look at it? Right. And, and that's where I'm uncomfortable with it. I want somebody that, that has the training, that, has the, that knows what they're doing, that stays within the legal bounds. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I agree with you, and I think that, that I hope that that is the direction that they are going in. I believe it is because, number one, they want to do everything they can in their power to get these crimes solved. And it seems like this is really helping. This process in general is helping solve a tremendous number of crimes. It's that cold for years and years and years and bringing these criminals right. to justice and also by looking at the interview we did with heather and she is not a mm -hmm. cop she is an expert in looking at tapes of crimes right she's she looks at video right. evidence so they're bringing in these experts that know how to do very specific things and have a very specific skill set in order to help them solve as many crimes as possible and i think 
that's kind of goes hand in hand with the theory that they're going to start bringing in genealogy people. They're going to start bringing in people that can analyze this DNA and mine through these fields of gen- genetic evidence and DNA evidence and family trees and all that stuff right. in order to try to bring crime solving techniques into this new frontier, so to speak. Right. Right. And I think the biggest thing is like that, that they were able to um, save the samples and that they were able to preserve the, the chain of evidence on the DNA that was found at the crime right. scene. That's always the biggest right. thing, you know, because if, if that's compromised, then, and this is also, keep in mind, you said this happened in June of 96. Right. You know, what happened just a couple months prior in, in 96 was the OJ verdict. Right. And, you know, and you have all of that stuff of the chain of custody and all the questions that were, you know, involved in that that case. And I think that that's always the biggest thing is if you can preserve that evidence, technology is going to catch up to a place where you can then use it to get the answers to these questions. And it's very encouraging to see the police solving these cold crimes that have sat there for 20 or 30 years. And right. poor parents that just always wondered what happened to their child and are now finding closure that they never thought they would find before. And it's right. interesting because the last and couple of cases we've done have all been like super cold cases. Mandy yeah. Stavick, yeah. the two Tacoma and girls. Um, the last one we did. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting too because there is kind of like there's a rush to use this genetic genealogy technology, but there's also you have to keep in mind that they have to do it the right way. If they get taken to trial and they have been found to violate somebody's Fourth Amendment rights by getting their genealogy like this, that's it. They lose that case. They can't bring that person yep. to trial. You know what I mean? So like they have to make sure to do it the right way too, which is also really really important in all of these. One bite at that apple. And I think that, exactly. And I think that that's kind of where I still have questions is not that I doubt that anybody doesn't want to do it the right way, but I think that in the rush to use this technology, I think, I think mistakes can be made. And that's where I kind of am apprehensive about this whole system. I think for me, the bigger concerns on this case are the fact that there was no DNA evidence linking Chris Tapp, but yet he was still convicted. Yeah. That to me is a bigger concern is this false confession concept and we are going to do a podcast episode about false confessions because it is a very real thing and there are many 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 documented cases of false confessions being forced out of people because they've been sitting in interrogation rooms for hours and hours and hours and just want to get out it's an interesting concept and they don't know that police can lie it's an interesting phenomena and i when I first learned about this case and started hearing the case of christopher tapp i kept thinking myself in my head well if you didn't do it then why the would you tell somebody you did do it That seems so stupid. Why would you go to jail for the rest of your life and tell somebody that you did something that you didn't do? That makes no sense to me. But again, scientific research shows that this is a very real phenomena. And they also show that when faced with DNA evidence or an eyewitness account, they will take the eyewitness account over the DNA Mm -hmm. evidence. It's crazy. Right. A jury will. Sorry. I mean, there are, there are law professors who spend their entire career researching false confessions like it's a big field and that's the thing that i don't think i realized until i started kind of getting into this is how often it does right. happen because it happens a lot and especially is the these younger people that are sitting in these interrogations mm-hmm. with a lower iq are particularly vulnerable uh, and it ends up being right. a, a case where a lot of these are happening 
And it's it's sad. It's yeah. really sad because these poor guys are ending up spending years in jail for something that they didn't do. Uh, it makes me think of Brandon mm-hmm. Dassey. And I know that's not the conversation yep. that we're having tonight, but he's clearly diminished capacity. And whether or not you think that Stephen Avery actually did commit the murder and making a murderer, then I think that I think everybody could agree that Brandon Brennan Dassey is diminished capacity and he was unfairly taken advantage of in his interrogation. Yeah. Good, bad, or indifferent about that particular case because there's just right. so many things going on with it. I do feel some compassion for that young man because it Absolutely. even if he was involved, I don't necessarily think that it was something that he would have chosen to do on his own if he had not been coerced or pressured into it by this person who was obviously more domineering and and intelligent and pushy than he was. And it's clear that in that interrogation that they that you can see how clearly they manipulate him into saying what they want to yeah. hear. So you you could also make the argument that he was manipulated into participating in this. If again, I mean, we're not I'm not making any judgment on whether or not Stephen Avery is right. guilty or Brendan Dassey is guilty, but he is. I think that he was unfairly taken advantage of, and it's shocking to me that he has not been granted a new right. trial. Well, but and that's, that's the same thing with Chris Tapps. They wouldn't grant him a new trial either yeah. until all this came forward. And it's interesting because when you listen to the tapes of Chris Tapps giving his interview, you can hear the police leading him along. They're like, you hear the police detective go, so there was a staircase, right? Like, how is that allowing the person to give testimony when you're basically feeding him what you want right. them to say and then they're just regurgitating the exact same thing back to you? That has no right truth to it. And it doesn't speak of right. somebody telling what really happened when you're constantly just telling yeah. them, here's what happened, right? Well, and I mean, we already said it, but that's that's why he ended up with six to eight different stories. Is that right? And like he kept naming different names and because he didn't know he didn't have the answers and he was trying to find the answer that they clearly wanted. And he just wanted to tell them what he thought they wanted to hear. So they would let him go. Right. And they kept telling him, hey, you're immune. You're good. You're not going to jail. So you might as well just tell us. So he thought, oh, I'm good. Well, if I just tell them what then I'll get to go, which is very, very sad. Um, unfortunately, the justice system yeah. has many twists and turns in it that can catch people up that don't have a background. It can catch even intelligent people up who don't have a, a legal background. And that's why it doesn't matter who you are. Your first thing should always be to ask for an attorney. Yeah, but this always. happened with an attorney sitting with him. Then that's shocking. That attorney did not do his job, his or her Just, job. It's horrifying. In any case, I think we're going to wrap the episode up for this evening. This is the point in the podcast where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We will put information on this into the show notes, and we will keep you guys updated as this trial comes for Brian Drips, who is the alleged murderer of Angie Dodge. Yeah. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Social media is... We are at the BFD Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram, and we'll be posting updates and everything like that as well there. Awesome. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs>